Welcome to this podcast for New Retina Radio. In today's program, Dr. Rishi Singh from the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, is joined by three global retinal experts to discuss recent updates in our understanding of fluid and neovascular age-related macular degeneration. In this episode, we discuss the implications of the different fluid compartments to disease outcomes in neovascular AMD, and whether management should vary according to where the fluid occurs. We'll be talking about the learnings gained from key clinical trials and considering whether fluid can be protective, which types of fluid need to be treated aggressively, and how AI may play a role in evaluating fluid. Welcome to this podcast for New Retina Radio entitled Fluid in Neovascular Age-Related Macular Degeneration and Evolution of Understanding. In this podcast, I'm joined by Drs. Jennifer Arnold, Mark Gillies, and Srinivas Sada, and we'll be discussing the topic of great interest at the moment, the role and importance of fluid in the management of retinal diseases from the clinician's perspective. I'm Dr. Rishi Singh from the Cole Institute at Cleveland Clinic, and I'm joined by my faculty panel who are going to introduce themselves next. Yes, hello Rishi, thank you for the invitation to join the panel. I'm Jennifer Arnold, Medical Retinal Specialist based in Sydney, Australia, uh, with the Marsden Eye Specialists. I have a particular interest in age-related macular degeneration and uh, involved in many clinical trials, including the fluid study, which has been addressing one of the topics that we are concerned with today. Uh, now, Dr. Mark Gillies, introduce yourself, please. Hi, yes, Mark Gillies from, uh, I'm the Director of Research at the Save Sight Institute of the University of Sydney, and I direct the Fight uh, Retinal Blindness Registries. And Dr. Vas Sada. Yeah, thanks very much, Rishi. Yeah, I'm Vas Sada. I'm a retina specialist at the Doheny Eye Institute and in UCLA, and I've been very excited about this topic of fluids, so look forward to our discussion. So let's start off with just sort of a brief understanding for the lay clinician. Uh, Dr. Arnold, maybe you can start off with uh, the compartments of fluid and what our current state is of understanding of both these compartments at this current, current state. Yes, when managing neovascular AMD, it's very important to have be aware of where fluid can, can collect within the retinal and subretinal layers. So we really divide the fluid into one's within the retina, which we call intraretinal fluid or sometimes intraretinal cysts. And this can be due to exudative fluid or even degenerative changes. The next compartment is under the retina itself, referred to as subretinal fluid, seen not only in macular degeneration with, neo with neovascularization, but also other retinal diseases. And the third compartment is under the pigment epithelium, sub-RPE. And Dr. Arnold, what have we learned from these compartments so far? What is the correlation from those compartments of fluid and anatomical outcomes and visual outcomes? There's more and more information is being gleaned on this. Some of the early treatment studies, the randomized controlled trials, did show that fluid in different compartments was predictive, not only of baseline vision, but of also to outcome vision with anti-VEGF therapy and response to treatment, whereby subretinal fluid and sub-RPE fluid were perhaps a little more benign than intraretinal fluid. So if you have a patient with intraretinal fluid at baseline, they are generally correlated to worse baseline vision. And also the continuation of that fluid or the appearance of new fluid is linked to worse visual outcomes. 
On the other hand, subretinal fluid uh, is seen in a large number of cases and it can persist despite fluid and still be consistent with really good outcomes. There's been more and more work on this as we start to better understand and classify the types of neovascularization and their location in the retina into three types, type one, two, and three, which have different patterns of accumulation of fluid. Dr. Sada, you did so much work in the Harbor trial with regards to the fluid analyses and walk us through some of those analyses and outcomes and uh, tell us how that the clinicians who are listening to this tonight uh, learned a lot about the data from Harbor and how it will impact their practices. Thanks, Rishi. And I just wanted to sort of add on to some of the important concepts that Jennifer raised about these different fluid compartments and the importance of the fluid compartments, whether they were in particular intraretinal or subretinal, that was evaluated in the Harbor study. Uh, and in particular, my involvement in this was really a postdoc analysis specifically focused on this concept of atrophy, which can certainly appear uh, in, in, these, uh, in these neovascular AMD patients over time. And we observed that, that intraretinal fluid appeared to be associated with more atrophy, whereas patients who had a subretinal fluid, uh, either, either at baseline or at any point during the course of the study, they had a lower risk for development of atrophy, which seems like a positive one thing I would add, which I think is very important, is some have uh, taken that information to then conclude that subretinal fluid is somehow a good thing. Uh, and I would just add that in this study, at least, the patients were getting treated. So it wasn't that the exudation was being left untreated. It was simply that if you had a little bit of fluid, uh, as long as you were under treatment, that did not appear to be associated with any uh, of a negative outcome. And so I think it just really highlights the, that the fact that we have to have a really nuanced approach to interpreting uh, a fluid. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's really one of the major observations from that trial. That's a great point, Voss, that it really was a biomarker and not necessarily intended to be seen in that case. That was an important point, I think, of your analysis. Dr. Gillies, you've done so much work for the Fight Retina Blindness Project, and it gives us a lot of insight. What insight have you, have you found from the role of fluid in neovascular AMD from your registry? Uh, thanks, Rishi. Good question. We've published uh, three or four papers on this this year. Now, the thing about our registry is that the fields all have to be filled out and within range for the data to get into the server. So we have 100% complete data. This is very different from, uh, for example, uh, data mining uh, with the IRIS registry, where the, the, you have much more data, many more patients, but the quality of data is very low. So we can look at, uh, we always grade atrophy and fibrosis. We can look at um, how these things develop. So we uh, looked at the nine-year incidence of atrophy over time. And if we graded eyes uh, that were active versus inactive and put them into quartiles, the eyes that were most active were four times less likely to get atrophy than the eyes that were least active. That was published in Retina. In another publication in Retina this year on fibrosis, um, we found that the eyes that were predominantly active were one and a half times more likely to, um, to get fibrosis than the eyes that were least active. So there's a balance for sure. If you're completely dry, you risk atrophy, but if you're, complete, if you're too wet, then you risk the fibrosis. We also published the 10-year outcomes. Uh, so in Switzerland, which uh, followed a PRN regimen, they only treated at 60% uh, at, uh, of visits and their lesions were active at 70% of visits. In Australia, we had a treat and extend regimen and our eyes were only 
uh, active at 40% of visits and we treated at 80% of visits. So it's a higher treatment rate, less activity, and our eyes got significantly less atrophy, but, um, so the Swiss eyes got significantly less atrophy, but more fibrosis, but they did much worse overall because they got four injections a year and we got five injections a year. So this is another thing, you've got to be on treatment, but even if you are on treatment, you've still got to give enough and uh, it looks like um, uh, you have got to treat fluid and you'll get better results. Now, most recently, we've looked at, um, we start looking at subretinal fluid only and we compared eyes and a series of 700 eyes, 12 month outcomes. And eyes that had subretinal fluid only did similarly to eyes that were dry over 12 months, but eyes that had uh, intraretinal fluid uh, did worse and they gained uh, five fewer letters over the 12 months. We haven't looked at the atrophy rates in the subretinal fluid only eyes, but we're expecting to find that's protective against atrophy. So I think in Australia, uh, based on our results from FRB and also from the fluid study, uh, Jenny and Robin's paper, we are tending to accept subretinal fluid and treat um, intraretinal fluid aggressively. But I think many people will tolerate uh, and not extend, or not uh, shorten on with subretinal fluid, and in some cases even extend. Any comments, Voss? So yeah, uh, yeah. Thanks, Rishi. So yeah, I, I think Mark made some very important points. Um, I guess uh, one concern I would have about um, about in terms of uh, the subretinal fluid, and I know Jennifer will. will tell us more about the fluid study uh, and the like, is just uh, with regards to, um, uh, to, to um, over time, uh, and of course, Mark talked about some uh, data that goes on for, for many years about whether there could be a concern over time. And we certainly know what uncontrolled exudation leads to because we had decades of experience uh, with that before we had anti-VEGF therapy. So now we're trying to find some kind of tipping point or threshold that potentially could be beneficial. But I would really want to highlight again that uh, it's hard to imagine how fluid itself could be uh, in a directly protective. I, I can't think of a really good mechanism. Our hypothesis has been uh, that this is related to the fact that this type of fluid, subretinal fluid, is often associated with the presence of neovascularization under the RPE, something we call type 1 neovascularization. Uh, and, there's a, and, and there's a sort of a thought these days that perhaps there could be some beneficial effect of that neovascularization. I mean, it obviously arose for a reason. And so uh, I, I would say that, you know, that, this, that I, I view the fluid really more as a biomarker for the neovascularization than that, uh, of this type of neovascularization rather than a true positive per se. So that's why I sort of feel, you know, we, we do know that we, exudation is bad. I think we should be treating it, but then I, I guess we don't have to necessarily worry if we can't get rid of every last bit of it, uh, despite aggressive therapy. Well, there's some bits that you do want to get rid of, right? So if there's a lot of SREM or subretinal hyperreflective material, then that looks pretty ugly. And, and the, 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 those ones do go fibrotic. So you treat that very aggressively. There's a big difference between that and subretinal fluid. I sort of think of subretinal fluid as maybe it's sort of, you know, it may be sustaining the retina, a completely dry macula. Perhaps that's not getting any blood supply at all. We don't know, you know, what nutrients are getting to the macula. In that case, subretinal fluid may be a source of nutrients, uh, but, uh, you know, the, the retinal structures are still intact. You can see the outer limiting membrane all the way through. Everything looks pretty good. Yeah, if I might just come in there, I, I want to stress that point that Vass made there, that... Uh, these are people under treatment and overall our patients are going to be disserved if we under treat. 
The, the question why we first started looking at this issue of subretinal fluid was because our initial goal was, uh, was to have zero fluid, zero subretinal and intraretinal fluid. And we found that many people were continuing on very intensive therapy for a long time, trying to achieve this end and uh, staying very stable. So it came out to the fact is, can we in fact under treatment, as Vass points out, tolerate some subretinal fluid? And uh, when we designed our study with that in mind, uh, as accepting subretinal fluid, if it were the only sign of lesion activity, then there wasn't a loss. We didn't compromise vision outcomes. But these were people under continuous treatment. And I think as time goes on, it also becomes uh, important to note that really maybe uh, rather than just tolerating subretinal fluid, it's the, uh, the stability of it. It does tend to fluctuate a bit, but I do think if you have a patient that's uh, uh, extending, getting more and more subretinal fluid, maybe you should uh, intensify a little bit, particularly if it's accompanied by uh, extension of the new vessel under the RPE. That's a great segue into talking more about your study, Dr. Arnold, and the fluid trial that you conducted. And uh, let's talk about some of the uh, inclusion parameters and some of the outcomes we saw in the study. Yeah, yes, thanks, Richard. Yes, this was uh, instigated in Australia with myself and uh, Robin Geimer to ask precisely this question when we observed people that had persistent subretinal fluid with good outcomes as the only sign of activity. So we were asking ourselves under a continuous treat and extend regimen, which is what we, uh, how we manage here in Australia, is it possible to be a little more relaxed and accept, or should we aim at zero fluid, including subretinal fluid in our patients? So these were all treatment naive patients included around 349, and they were randomized to a group that aimed at this zero tolerance of fluid. You treat any fluid in the intra or subretinal compartments, or a group that after a loading dose, if subretinal fluid was the only sign, you were, could extend out. That, of course, there was one caveat that if there was a very large amount of fluid right under the point of fixation, then uh, you, you would take that as active, although there were very few eyes that fulfilled this criteria, since subretinal fluid we know from studies tends to localize around the periphaveal location rather than right under the faveal center. And what we found was, in fact, we didn't compromise sight. There was no difference in the rate of, uh, of, of vision outcomes. But those people uh, were able to have a less intense treatment regimen. They had a, a one injection difference over the 24 months, but a greatly increased number who weren't stuck on four weekly. That changed from, I think, around 25% down to around 2% in the people that were tolerant. So instead of having everybody uh, maintained at four weeks, we were able to extend. They also had considerably more people that extended out to the maximum interval, which was 12 weeks. So it seemed that by tolerating some subretinal fluid, uh, you weren't compromising outcomes, at least to the two-year point. So this is how many of us now manage our neovascular AMD patients here in Australia. So Dr. Arnold, in your analysis of these patients, uh, walk me through how you actually did the presence of fluid, because I think that the measurement is so much uh, as important as the outcome in some of these studies. So was this all reading center related measurement? We're using an AI algorithm to read the fluid. How are you doing the analysis of fluid in this, in this study? Yes, Rishi, that's a very good point. I think as time goes on, we're going to need a more nuanced uh, measurement of fluid. Initially in the studies, it was just central 
foveal thickness, which I think is not an adequate uh, point on which to guide treatment. In this study, it was a simple present absence as a, a, a quantitative, a qualitative uh, assessment. Now it was assessed by the investigator, but to maintain masking, the presence or absence of subretinal fluid was read by a masked reading center, uh, which I think was one of the first um, uh, topics aimed on a PRN or treat and extend approach that actually had the reading center um, controlling how frequently the injections were on this parameter. So the investigator would say intraretinal fluid present or not, and if that was present, they automatically had treatment and shortened. But the subretinal fluid, uh, they made an assessment, but it was um, that the, the decision was made on what the reading center assessed. Now I'm gonna uh, talk to you about a study that was uh, at Arvo last year. And this is a study by Ursula Schmitterfurt who looked at an artificial based intelligence analysis of the Hawk and Harrier trials. And what she found essentially was sort of counter to what we've discussed this evening in that uh, the uh, rates of, of fluid actually were significant in all of the patients studied. And in fact, when you look at those rates and their relationship to the highest quartile fluid and the lowest quartile fluid, all compartments mattered. So maybe Voss, I don't know if you're familiar with the study or you can comment on sort of these AI-based algorithms. Is this something we've missed as clinicians? Are we not looking at you know, maybe the central subfield only and not necessarily um, a volumetric analysis, and that's why we've missed these analyses and the relationship of SRF and this outcome potentially? Well, I, I think, Rishi, I mean, you know, it, it is true that a lot of the, uh, you know, pre-AI uh, pre sort of reading center sort of data tends to focus on the foveal central subfield because that, that central area we think would be naturally most important for vision. Uh, but uh, one of the things that we've sort of highlighted through this discussion is the importance of just sort of generally understanding if the lesion is active or not. Uh, and so, you know, fluid outside of the center also matters. And that may be something that's being reflected in these types of volumetric analyses. Obviously, you know, it's still automated segmentation. There could be other errors as well. But assuming that that's all balanced out, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it does seem to highlight that, uh, that uh, th this matters. I think that, you know, as I said, I mean, we didn't need these recent studies to know that exudation uh, makes a difference. And so it's not, not surprising. I think what we're really sort of parsing now is, is uh, you know, do you have to get every uh, bit out? Uh, and I think that's what Jennifer and Mark were, were talking about. Um, and, and that's where, you know, again, I try to, I personally try to, to based on the data, try to treat to dry the retina, but then if there is some uh, residual subretinal fluid while under control, while under treatment, essentially maintaining control, um, you know, I think that uh, that's a situation where I'll accept it. I just wanted to also add, Rishi, just, you know, Mark made a very important point earlier about SHREM, uh, which are subretinal hyperreflective material, which is something we haven't talked a lot about uh, so far, uh, but that is something even in a post-hoc analysis of Hawk and Harrier was found to be the most important predictor in terms of these different lesion features of vision outcomes. And I think we have to be very intolerant of that. That's very different from uh, subretinal fluid, of course, because this is sort of that more solid uh, sort of component. Uh, and I think that that's something uh, that is uh, worth uh, watching very carefully. That's a really great point, uh, Vasily. If I may uh, come in there, I think it's important to really look at all of your OCT uh, material when you are evaluating uh, these patients, whether or not they need a treatment. You can't just go on one cut through the center of the fixation or one parameter like central 
reveal thickness on your macular cube map, you really need to assess it. And I agree, looking for subtle features like SREM, which might be the only sign of reactivation uh, before you get intra or subretinal fluid change. And so uh, I would just urge not to, when you're looking for a biomarker on your OCT that you uh, really need to examine them all. What Urshel is trying to do, I think, is to see if there's an AI uh, refinement of our ability to pick up these biomarkers uh, better than the naked eye in a busy clinic. Uh, but still looking at all your scans is much better than looking at one point. And SREM in particular is important to be detected. Well, I think Professor Schmidt-Ofirth has got um, a very interesting method and she, can, she says she can measure this fluid, but we're yet to see what the critical amounts are. Presumably one picoliter of fluid is not all that significant and a hundred times that amount might be, but what are the limits? What, what, is, what do you tolerate, what you don't? There's still a lot of work to be done here. At least what we're dealing with, uh, we, what we can see, you can see subretinal fluid. It's not a difficult thing to see. Intraretinal fluid is sometimes a bit more challenging, but of course you look at every scan. Um, but generally, you can pick these things up. There's not a lot of dispute about whether the subretinal fluid is there or not between retinal specialists. And the observations so far, and also the observations from CAT, are pretty much uh, supporting a degree of tolerance of subretinal fluid, in my view. And then maybe we can modify and get better outcomes with uh, the AI, but they've got a long way to go, and we need to see what the critical values are, what can we accept and what, what don't we accept. Well, that's a great summary, Mark. Uh, and I really appreciate all of your participation for tonight's program. Uh, again, uh, the goal of tonight's discussion was really to summarize some of the recent findings from fluid analyses and what we're looking at as clinicians. I think that maybe I can summarize it for all three of us this evening that certainly these compartments are different. They have different actions. Uh, we are not treating necessarily in the ignorance of compartments per se, but we're losing these and seeing these as biomarkers of final visual outcomes. And more needs to be done in the field of artificial intelligence, maybe for us to um, understand better the implications of these fluid compartments and what that might mean. While our initial observations have been really quite good, thanks to many of the work, uh, much of the work that you all have done tonight and, and continue to do in research, uh, we still need a better understanding of that in the, in the practice in the future. That's all we have time for for this discussion. I wanna thank our participants, Dr. Arnold, Gillies, and Sada for their valuable insights. And I hope you found this discussion useful and interesting. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>